The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, always glad to have you along and happy to be working alongside producer Eric Ryder. He is at the board making sure that we stay in our lane, as it were. Today, we are going to head out to Las Vegas, Nevada, and to what is known informally as the Mob Museum. What a place. If you think this is a little exhibit, a little out-of-the-way destination, there's nothing out of the way about Las Vegas until you're outside the desert heading in and awaiting all the glitz and glamour of Sin City. But the Mob Museum itself is extraordinary. It takes up three floors, and there's an underground what a visit we will have and we will get as much information to you as we can within the space of our half hour right after we hear from a couple of our sponsors let me start by mentioning a fairly new sponsor actually we're sure glad they're with us bowling green kentucky convention and visitors bureau if you've given travel the green light then hit the road to bowling green kentucky the home of corvette from high-speed attractions like the National Corvette Museum and Beach Bend Park to outdoor favorites like Lost River Cave and Zipline or family-owned farms and wineries, Bowling Green is geared for fun. Just be sure not to try and fill up at the historic Standard Oil Station in the downtown district. Request your free guide and start planning today at visitbgky.com. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. Kids studying in college, drinking too much caffeine, overloading on these energy drinks, they end up in the hospital. Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water, co-created with my uncle, Dr. Henry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, who said, Anson, alert drives will save more lives than the maneuver. Whether you are driving, whether you are studying, whether you're just a tired mom, whenever you need to be alert, get alert drops. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. It's scientifically proven. It's doctor approved. Again, it's natural. It's been honored by the United States Congress. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Chart your course to visit Alliance Nebraska. Fun, safe, family-friendly, and pet-friendly activities make Alliance one adventure you and your family don't want to miss. Come for Carhenge and stay to experience our many other free attractions, craft brews, and local dining. Yes, all of the attractions are free. Shop along our historic brick streets, too. Carhenge is a 2020 Top 10 Worldwide Award winner by TripAdvisor. Unique, quirky, and a pop culture icon, Carhenge is open year-round to visitors who love to experience something different. You won't find a to-scale replica of England's Stonehenge quite like this anywhere else in the world. Our little slice of country is your place to relax before you head to the hills or mountains with all of the small town charm your soul needs. For more information, please go to visitalliance.com. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. 
we would like to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Jeff Schumacher as the Vice President of Exhibits and Programs at the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement in Las Vegas, Nevada, known to most as the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Jeff Schumacher is responsible for exhibits, artifacts, and public programs. Mr. Schumacher earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Nevada, Reno, and his master's degree in history from Arizona State University. He started his 25-year journalism career at the Las Vegas Sun, where he was a reporter, editorial writer, and city editor. He was the editor of Las Vegas City Life and founder of the Las Vegas Mercury. Jeff is the author of two books, Sun, Sin, and Suburbia, A History of Modern Las Vegas, and Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. So for the first time, we welcome to Trip Talk, Jeff Schumacher. Jeff, we're so glad to have you with us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, we're, we're delighted. And I have been waiting for months to, to find the right time to bring you on and talk about the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. What an extraordinary place. I should mention that I lived in Las Vegas for five years there, which is far less than a lot of people who've called Las Vegas home. And I saw the place grow. I saw it give itself a facelift when I came back for a visit. I moved to Seattle in 1989, came back to Las Vegas in 1993. What, what That used to be a, a Chevron station, and now it's New York, New York. <laughs> That's the way it goes in Las Vegas, always with the facelift, always with the reinvention. And now here we are talking about the Mob Museum. What an extraordinary place to visit. And before we get into questions, Jeff, let me just pay you a compliment. You are in charge of your portion of something that actually attracted neighbors of, our, of ours. And I live right now in Sarasota, Florida. And our neighbors were out in Las Vegas. They called us up to see how we were doing. And we said, well, how are you doing in Las Vegas? Ah, we're up a little bit, but we were looking for places to see outside the casinos. And I said, oh, well, listen, you need to go to the Mob Museum. That's a place that I, it's on my bucket list. I absolutely have to get there and you'll see it first. And they said, hey, that sounds good. We'll check it out. They visited the Mob Museum and called us back to rave about the experience they had. And they're going to tell all of their friends it is now a must see in Las Vegas. So congratulations. Well, well, thank you. about uh, Thank you for that story. You know, word of mouth is, is the single greatest uh, asset that we have. People love the museum so much and they go back and tell their friends. And, and uh, we, we hear that story a lot where people, you know, share this, their, their love for the museum with others and they come and see it too. You know, there are museums and there are museums. The Mob Museum takes up three floors and there's an underground. I, you know, I would be tempted to go up to the third floor first, though I probably won't because there's so much to see, so much that attracts the eye and ear. But when I go up there, it seems on the third floor, you've got an, an exhibit and an historical representation that perhaps answers the question, why did you open the museum? I believe it was nine years ago on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Well, that's true. You know, we opened uh, almost 10 years ago. So in February, we will uh, we will mark our 10th anniversary. And uh, it was on that date in 2012, uh, St. Patrick, uh, I'm sorry, Valentine's Day, that uh, we opened. And we did that because one of the premier artifacts that we have in the museum are the bricks from the wall against which uh, seven men were shot down in 1929 
in Chicago, and this became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It was a, a pitched battle between uh, two rival bootlegging groups, one led by a man named Al Capone, some people might have heard of him, and the, uh, an Irish uh, gang uh, led by a man named Bugs Moran. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth between these groups that culminated on that date in 1929. And it, it really changed the history of organized crime and it changed the history of America because it led ultimately to the repeal of prohibition. So that's a really big issue for us. It's a big story for our museum. And we happen to have these bricks, which are, you know, it's, they're one of a kind. And they, you know, it's really a, uh, something that people come from all over, all points to see. That is extraordinary. That's exactly the kind of thing that actually is beyond what I would have hoped to see there for you to secure that and to make a very memorable exhibit of it. No wonder my neighbors got so excited. Also, and I think it's also on the third floor, Jeff, I have heard quite a bit about this, even recently doing a little prep for this show. There were the famous, if not notorious, Kefauver hearings in Congress, which electrified America. Tens of millions of people got to find out a lot more than they ever knew about organized crime by means of that congressional hearing. Do you have that represented? We do. So right at the beginning of the second floor, we kind of tell the story of the mob and law enforcement in America somewhat chronologically. And you start on the third floor, you work your way down to the second and then the first floor. And, and it becomes a more modern story as you go. So in 1950 and 51, uh, Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee led a, a Senate committee that was investigating organized crime. And they held hearings in 14 different cities across America. Some of these uh, hearings were televised live. And this was the first time that we ever had this kind of live television uh, covering, you know, important topics in America, whether in nowadays we think of the, you know, the Watergate hearings were live or the OJ Simpson trial, right? But in the, this was the Kefauver hearings were the first time something like that was done. And it really captivated America. So one of those hearings was held in Las Vegas uh, and it was held in our building on the second floor in the courtroom. And so this makes, uh, you know, the idea of the Mob Museum being in this particular building, this is the match. It's, it's unbelievable that one of the more pivotal moments in mob history occurred in the very building where we have our museum. So we, uh, we have a lot of artifacts related to that, those hearings, and we, uh, we have the very courtroom where it occurred. So uh, that's another really great artifact that we have. Now that you've said that, uh, one thing I should note, uh, notable as an exception on this organized crime tour when they were doing these investigations, somehow Senator Kefauver from Tennessee didn't manage to schedule any of those tours in a town in Tennessee, no Nashville, no Memphis, that got skipped on the tour, but they made it to Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, at, at that time, Las Vegas was by far the smallest city that they hit. Uh, the, you know, most of these hearings were held in New York and Chicago and Miami and, and these bigger cities, but Las Vegas at that point was just emerging as a, a, a sort of a mob haven, or at least it had a reputation for that. And there was a feeling that, you know, gambling was such a big part of the hearings, illegal gambling in other places, that they wanted to know more about what was happening here. So, so that was the rationale for it. I see. 
And there was a man who didn't think of Las Vegas as small. He thought of it as a town with big, big potential. He was Benjamin Siegel, known to Ben as his friends. And if you referred to him by his nickname, Bugsy Siegel, you didn't say it to his face. <laughs> Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. There is a saga and legends, of course, around the man. Jeff, tell us about his connection to Vegas, his vision, and ultimately his fate. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, Benjamin Siegel, Ben Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, you know, he was... In, in Mob Chronicles, you know, for, for years, he was a notorious uh, mobster in New York City. Uh, he was involved with Meyer Lansky. He was involved in bootlegging. He was involved in the sort of the formation of Murder, Inc., which was the hit squad for the mafia. But then in the mid-30s, he moved out to California and started sort of pointing in on what was going on there from an organized crime standpoint. And once he got to California, he took an interest in Las Vegas. And he, among other uh, mob figures, noticed that it would be a lot easier to run a legal casino than an illegal casino. And so they saw Las Vegas as a great opportunity. Now, Siegel was not the first person to think of Las Vegas in this way, but what he did was he built and spent the money to build really the, the most fabulous uh, casino on what came to be known as the Las Vegas Strip, and that was the Flamingo Hotel. The, there were some problems along the way. You know, Bugsy was was basically a you know a tough guy in the mob. He wasn't a casino manager, um, so he he didn't necessarily fit the profile to what was needed to build a casino nor to run one. So when they opened, they opened prematurely on December 26th, 1946. We have an anniversary coming up, and uh, they opened early because there was a great deal of pressure from Siegel's colleagues in the mob uh, to start, you know, start gaining some revenue out of the place. The problem was they hadn't finished the hotel yet. They had 100 rooms that weren't finished. So when people came to the Flamingo to visit in those early days, you know, they'd be there for a few hours and, and they might be gambling or having dinner or going to a show. But eventually they didn't want to go to bed. So they had to leave the Flamingo, go down the street, uh, the highway in those days, down to the El Rancho Vegas or the Last Frontier or someplace like that and stay the night. And what happened is then they'd wake up in the morning and start gambling at those places. So the Flamingo was was not an overnight success. And this uh, led to a great deal of, of consternation from the, from the investors. Siegel was under a great deal of pressure. Ultimately, uh, in, in June of 1947, uh, Siegel was killed, and he was in, in uh, Beverly Hills, California, at his girlfriend Virginia Hill's home, sitting on the couch in the evening, reading the newspaper, and a gunman started shooting through the window and hit uh, Siegel in the head a couple of times, right in the eye, right next to his eyeball, actually, and, and killed him instantly. Um, there, ever since then, now, we're, we're talking a lot of decades and years, that investigation has been ongoing and nobody has ever been arrested for that crime. So there's a great deal of speculation about who pulled the trigger and who put him up to it. Still a cold case. And if anybody is interested in the tentacles of organized crime, this would be a classic example because as I understand it, Jeff, 
the vote, and there was a vote taken on whether or not Ben Siegel should live or not, was actually decided at a Christmas organized crime conference. Uh, it was at Hotel Nacional in Havana. Think of of Mr. Siegel out in Las Vegas and the decision to rub him out was made by vote in Havana, Cuba. That's my understanding of how that went down. Well, yes, and and uh, I'm very familiar with that story. I have to say as a historian, I have to have an ounce of skepticism about it because there is not a lot of hard evidence about it. But uh, to just elaborate on that story, you know, Lucky Luciano was the head of the mafia, right, at that time. But he had been in prison uh, in New York. But during World War II, he helped the Allies, uh, you know, in various ways by protecting the docks in New York and New Jersey, for example, by helping uh, with the invasion of Italy and so forth. And so he was pardoned in, in 1946 after the war. And the only condition of his pardon was he had to leave the United States. And so he went to Italy. He was, you know, Luciano was not happy about this. He was an American essentially, and and you know, he wanted to remain in America, but he was not able to do that. And so uh, he had to go to Italy. Well, he still wanted to remain the head of things. And so what he did was he convened a group uh, to meet in Cuba, and that was not United States territory. Presumably, he, he could get away with being in Cuba. So this was right around Christmas time in 1946, and one of the Topics on the agenda, according to this, as the story goes, was what to do about Benjamin Siegel and the Flamingo Hotel. And as this, again, as the story goes, Luciano and and the group there discussed this. Meyer Lansky certainly defended his longtime friend Bugsy Siegel, but others were not convinced that Siegel was up to the task of running the Flamingo for the mob. So the you know the. The, the story is that Lucky Luciano made the final call. Bugsy's got to go. He sent the orders to uh, Jack Dragna, who was the head of the mafia in L.A. at that time. And uh, and then we know what happened. Uh, Siegel was killed. There are alternative theories about what happened to Siegel. Uh, it could be something related to his involvement with some other uh, criminal activities in Southern California. Could have had to do with his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, and the fact that he was have some domestic violence issues with her. Those are plausible theories as well, but the overriding theory is that Luciano made the call. Thank you for spelling that out, Jeff. I'd like to pivot back to the Mob Museum itself. In terms of being a tableau of that wide swath of American history, the underground, and there is even an underground at the Mob Museum, three floors and the underground, Please tell us in however way you want to. If I buy the ticket, and I'm going to, and I go take the tour, what is the recommended best way to enjoy it? Because you have so much there, I wouldn't think you could see the place and really appreciate it in just an hour or two. You know, this is something that's evolving uh, in, even in recent times. What we're seeing is that uh, people who are really interested in this topic can come to the museum and spend, you know, three hours easily uh, just in the museum part, you know, the first three four floors, and then spend another hour down in the speakeasy enjoying a drink and, and the exhibits in that space. So, um, you know, I will say to people, if they want to come visit, they should definitely not try to squeeze it into an hour or two. It, it really takes a little more time than that. 
And you could even consider doing it over two days, like people do at Disneyland or, you know, bigger places where, you know, they say, you know what, I can't possibly do everything in one day. Why don't I dedicate more than one day to it? So that's a possibility. In terms of the way you experience the museum, I would recommend ideally working your way down from the top. So third floor, second floor, first floor, and then take an extended break down in the underground <laughs> where you can enjoy, you know, prohibition era mixed drinks. You can uh, experience the exhibits we have in that space. We have our distillery down there too, where we make moonshine on the site of the museum. And you can go and take a tour and a tasting in the distillery. So there's so much to do that, uh, you know, as, I, as someone who works there, I envy the person who comes to the museum and has the time to experience all of it for the first time, because I think they'll really be impressed. I'm quite sure of that. There's only one first time. And to be able to go there and put yourself into that whole milieu would be an extraordinary experience. When it comes to the artifacts, now you mentioned the Valentine's Massacre wall. Uh, there's that, but how about something that, that might still be available to see elsewhere, but they're dwindling, and that is an authentic slot machine, for example, back from the days when legal gambling was first enacted by the Nevada legislature, the real first-generation legalized gambling equipment. Well, we absolutely have examples of that. Uh, we have uh, early slot machines on display in our exhibits, especially in an exhibit about early Las Vegas. You know, gambling was legalized here in 1931. Uh, we had been a railroad town before that, primarily. And then, of course, Hoover Dam was being built in the 30s. So it started driving lots of people to Las Vegas in the 30s during the Depression when the rest of the country was hurting, Las Vegas was thriving. And so we have slot machines and, and other gambling devices uh, on display. We also have more uh, slot machines from more in the era of the 1950s and 60s. And these are uh, uh, slot machines that were popular for a while that actually look like people. <laughs> they look like characters. So we have one that's like a, a bandit. He looks like he's a bad guy in an old Western. And then we have one that looks very much like Vegas Vic, the famous iconic sign on Fremont Street of the uh, cowboy. And this was a motif that was very popular back in the 50s and 60s. And so we have a couple of those slot machines on display. We also have one from the Flamingo Hotel, Bugsy's Place, uh, from the late 40s, early 50s, to give people an idea of what, what slot machines looked like in those days. They were not digital <laughs> like they are today, and you, you had to put actual money in them. So they, these are becoming more rare as we speak. And in the couple of minutes that we have left, Jeff, how is the transition represented at the Mob Museum from the town that the mob ran? And I've met some old timers that say it ran the best when the mob was running it. More than one person has said that to me. To the corporate era and particularly the overweening influence of Howard Hughes. Yes, you know, I could I could go on for hours about Howard Hughes. I won't hear. I mean, I wrote a book about him and uh, his involvement with Las Vegas. Uh, there's no question that starting in the late 1960s, but really accelerating in the 70s and 80s, you saw the mob uh, starting to be uh, edged out of Las Vegas uh, by corporate America. And what happened is, you know, uh, gambling was no longer considered to be a sin. It was no longer something to be done 
you know, in quiet. People were becoming accepting of it. And as a result, corporate America, their, their eyes perked, their ears perked up and their, and their eyes bulged. And they said, you know what? We can make a lot of money getting involved with this casino business. And they had a lot more capital to work with than the mob ever did. And so what you end up seeing is Howard Hughes really opening that door, um, the passage of uh, some state laws that allowed for corporations to invest in Las Vegas, and the growth then in the 70s and the 80s, and certainly in the 90s when you were here, of what we now call mega resorts, right? These 4,000, 5,000 room hotels with a dozen or more restaurants and multiple showrooms and everything that you could imagine in one place. And that's a, a vision that certainly Bugsy Siegel, I don't think, could ever uh, have, have pondered uh, because Las Vegas now we have, you know, almost 3 million people here living here. And, you know, we have obviously post pandemic, we're, we're seeing, you know, our numbers going back to normal. So, uh, you know, it's just an astonishing uh, place when it comes to uh, how big these resorts are and how much they have to offer. And Jeff, I would be remiss if I didn't offer you an opportunity to indicate where exactly the museum is located, about getting tickets, memberships, tell everybody about it. Absolutely. You know, the, the Mob Museum is in, in downtown Las Vegas. It's two blocks off of Fremont Street. And, you know, most people uh, come to Las Vegas, they may stay on the Las Vegas Strip or spend a lot of time there. But the, usually you make a visit down to Fremont, Fremont Street, which is an amazing display of history and, and gambling all itself. Uh, two blocks off of Fremont Street is the Mob Museum on Stewart Avenue. Uh, and, you know, uh, in terms of the visitation, we're open seven days a week. Uh, and, you know, we're open every day. And we have memberships, which are extremely smart thing to get. Even if you don't live uh, in Las Vegas and, and don't visit all the time, a membership is very economical for someone who wants to come to the museum. So I, might, I would recommend that to everyone. Um, you know, the underground is open late. You know, the museum might be open until nine o'clock, but the underground, especially on Friday night, Saturday night, when we have live music, is open until midnight or beyond. So, uh, you know, lots and lots of opportunities to have a good time and to find, to find a way to get the museum into your plans. Jeff Schumacher, I can't thank you enough for being a member of our family, our own family here, the American Road Trip Talk family. I hope that we get the chance to meet face to face. Next time I'm out in Las Vegas, I will make that happen. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk today, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi everybody, this is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.